and welcome to the Books on Asia podcast, sponsored by Stonebridge Press, publisher of fine books on Asia for over 30 years, located at www.stonebridge.com. And I'm your host, Amy Chavez. And today we have with us from Bangkok, Alex Kerr. And many of you are already familiar with Alex. He has many books out on Japan. Most popular ones are probably Lost Japan and Another Kyoto. And he's here today to talk to us about his new book called Finding the Heart Sutra. And we're going to find out what moved him to write this book. So, welcome, Alex. Thank you very much, Amy. This is, this is a joy. And this is the result of 40-some years of an obsession, really, <laughs> on this subject. And so now it's finally come out. Now, did you do the kanji on the cover? Yes, I did. And the, there are kanjis throughout the book, calligraphies. And it's, uh, this is something that uh, has also been another obsession, uh, which uh, calligraphy, since I was a boy of nine, I've been writing it. And calligraphy is key to the Heart Sutra. Uh, for a lot of people uh, in Japan and in China and in many other parts of Asia, uh, you can chant the Heart Sutra, but they but writing, they call it shakyo, copying the Heart Sutra is a traditional way to gain merit. Calligraphy has been associated with Heart Sutra from day one. I've only seen a review copy of the book, but thank you. The review copy was excellent, and I've read the whole thing, of course, and I even started to read it again from the beginning. But the calligraphy really stands out. It really is a special touch to it, and the cover is absolutely stunning. So what moved you to write this book then? Well, first of all, it's really short, and that's part of its fascination. This thing is 200, roughly 250 lines, and it's, you can recite the whole thing in a minute, which means that it's compressed, it's intense. Kanji by kanji, word by word, phrase by phrase, there are universes of Buddhist thought that have been compressed into this thing. I call them jewel phrases. And uh, the more you learn about it, the deeper you can go. And I commentate not just me, commentators for a thousand have done that. They've picked up phrase by phrase and then talked about it. And that's the way I do it. There's a story. It does develop from start to finish, but there also is the uh, incredible depth, just literally word by word. And many of them have been discussed by commentators and others people never talked about because they seemed obvious. I, I really uh, enjoyed it. And I used this towel to go through as you did the phrase by phrases <laughs> because, because I had the e-copy. I couldn't so easily flip back and forth and look at the kanji and everything. So I used this. It was actually quite effective. And I didn't realize it before, but it even has little dots at the end of each phrase, which I had never seen before. <laughs> That's for chanting it so you know where to pause. Now, one of the things about the Heart Sutra is it's gone really deep into Japanese culture. This is something that, especially the famous two lines, that the material world is the same as emptiness, the emptiness is the same as the material world. Shiki soku zeku, ku soku zeshiki. All the Japanese know that. Uh, when they hear it in kabuki, they immediately, they get it. Uh, they may not know the whole, all the deep significances and so on, but that basic concept is there and everyone knows it. I really liked um, how you brought up in your book the first time, I think it was the first time you had heard it or the second, but how uh, someone just stood up in the room and started chanting it. Um, this was a 
David Kidd's palace. Yes, this was my first encounter. And that's the way it so often happens. It's <laughs> it's like someone will just start chanting it for some reason, or even if it's just those lines. And it's always a, a situation where it's absolutely appropriate. Well, that was my first encounter, and, and it was at the home of David Kidd, who was a great art collector and dealer and a mentor of mine. And he lived in a feudal lord's palace in Kobe. The landlord sold the land out from under it and they had to tear it down, the last of its kind. And so there we were, everyone sitting very glum. And this monk whipped out a, a blue fan with a heart sutra written on it and began chanting in a, in a loud, booming voice and laughing as he went. And I, I had no idea even what this was about. Uh, but that's what it was. It was the Heart Sutra. And of course, it's about emptiness. So he's saying the loss of this palace, it doesn't matter because it's all empty anyway. Uh, and you're right. When people do quote the Heart Sutra, it's usually at a moment like that when something climactic has happened and you need to go beyond it. I really, really enjoyed where you brought up the very beginning of the Heike Monogatari. Because that is also such a famous introduction to the Heike story that every Japanese person knows. I think they have to learn it in school, actually. And again, that's another thing that, you know, it talks about uh, transience and the impermanence of, of life and how power must always fall and that people must pass on. That's right. Evanescence, impermanence, that's maybe the biggest subject of Japanese literature and Chinese too. Uh, and so, and those things arise from Buddhism in general, but in particular the Heart Sutra, because it was so short and it was something that people memorized and knew, uh, it has infused uh, writing, literature, architecture, sculpture, all of these things have the Heart Sutra in them somewhere. And that's actually getting back to why I wrote the book. It's very well known, uh, at least the, the fact that it exists is known in Japan, and many people do shakyo where they chant it. It's also known in the West to some degree among Buddhist circles. So there are dozens of books on the Heart Sutra in English, but it's not known in the general public. So when I tell friends, normal friends, that I'm, going, I'm doing a book on the Heart Sutra, they say, the what? They haven't heard of it. They're all about Confucius and Lao Tzu, you know. Uh, they don't know this book, even though it's probably, when you look at the last 1300 years, the most widely read and deeply beloved and influential of all books of Asian wisdom. What struck me uh, most about your approach was that you were able to relate it to your own life and to certain people in your life. And I thought that was very telling. It's all put together in a package like that in an easy to understand way for the reader. It really has a lot of meaning. I can think back on your book and I can just pick out so many parts of it that I remember. Well, it's partly because that's how I experienced it. It's, it's not so much uh, as about my life per se, but the people in my life, such as David Kidd, William Gilkey. David Kidd was the collector. Uh, on the title, it says, uh, guided by a magician, an art collector, and Buddhist sages. Uh, so the collector was David, but there was the magician, the sage of Chickasha, Oklahoma, <laughs> William Gilkey, who lived in Kameoka. 
And I want to get back to uh, uh, that a little later, why those two are, are a kind of yin and yang flowing through the book. And Marguerite Yourcenar, the great French writer, whose idea in the first place it was to do a book on Heart Sutra. And then other people that met along the way, some Abbott in Kyoto or whatever. These are the people that had these amazing insights. And, uh, and that's how I uh, was able to have certain breakthroughs and understand something. And so I think it might be fun for the reader to also go through that process. Absolutely, yeah. It was very interesting, and uh, I could uh, I could definitely guess the first two of those people. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I was uh, finally I understood your connection to Omotokyo. I'm not sure that I always understood that before, and I knew that you had worked for them and done some art stuff. And but uh, the relationship to David Kidd, and then you go on also to talk about Omotokyo as a religion. Well, David brought me to Omoto, and he also brought Gilki. Uh, so, and I was there for 20 years. But Omoto provides a very useful backdrop and an insight, partly because it's Shinto, and there are certain fantastic uh, realizations that Onisaburo, the founder of Omoto, had that really helped me with the Heart Sutra, one of which I'll pause for a minute and let's talk about it. And it also relates to Thailand. And it's the idea, Onisaburo's concept, that the world is moving from the material to the spiritual. Everything we do must aim in that direction. And that, of course, is key to the Heart Sutra's build-up, the story of the Heart Sutra as it goes from the beginning through to the end. It's also something that you have down here in Thailand in a thing called the Tripun, which is the best conception of the three levels, Buddhist levels of the world, which is hell, the so-called real world that we live, and, the he and heaven, but heaven which is centered around the, uh, the Mount Sumeru, the center of the universe, is a slowly rising column of less and less materiality until at the top you have these expanding umbrellas of emptiness until finally beyond that is nothing. And that's the rise into spirituality, which Omoto had. So Omoto was very useful. William Gilkey was drawn to Omoto because he was a Western-style spiritualist. And Gilki is of value because many of the people who write about the Heart Sutra, although it says the material world is the same as emptiness, basically get stuck on emptiness. And from there on, that's all you ever hear about. But it's also about the material world. We live here. And the material world involves entropy and the development of consciousness and the growth into spirituality and all these other issues, which is what Gilkey was about. And David Kidd, of course, with his love of beauty, all of those other issues are also a factor and you need to keep them balanced. And both of them are hilarious. They're extremely witty people. And David Kidd especially was maybe the funniest person I've ever known. <laughs> and we, we would come home from his house with our stomachs aching from laughing all night. Uh, so the two of them are fun, and they were fun to talk to, and I've tried to pass on those conversations. Uh, one thing that I had said in the book is, you know, people have asked me, what are you trying to put across? You know, uh, some people are trying to, uh, the scholars are studying the fine points of the Sanskrit and Chinese philology and, you know, that, those issues. And then you have the, uh, the Buddhists 
who are want to enlighten you, you know, they're going to be sure that you reach enlightenment. And then the other group, which is kind of, it's almost like the Heart Sutra and how to make money or the Heart Sutra and love or, you know, how it can change your life. And I'm really not any of those. What did I read? What have people thought about it? I call it transmission, which is a huge thing in Buddhism. The idea that wisdom is transmitted from the Buddha to his disciples, to theirs and to our teachers today. And I've been sort of fascinated with mentors I would go home after an evening at David's after I had my stomach calmed down and write it down. I have notebooks of these things. I recorded Gilkey. Uh, these things were important to me. And not only the living mentors that I knew, but the ones that I've read, like Hakuin, the great Zen abbot. He's also hilarious. And, and in the same way that they were, I feel that I'm talking with him. And so these people had insights over many centuries, and I'm trying to pass those things on. Yeah, there's a lot of Hakuin in the book, and uh, there's also just a lot of, um, of other books that you refer to and concepts, which is all very nice to hear also. I think I've added to my to-be-read list <laughs> from yours. One thing, I, one thing I think about my approach is I call it ecumenical, <laughs> meaning that I'm not just Zen. Uh, usually what happens is the Zen people write the Zen book, and the Tibetans write the Tibetan book. But I'm, there, there's Kukai in there, which is esoteric Buddhism. There's Fadzong in there, who's one of my absolute favorites. He was another magician, uh, wrote maybe the most profound commentary of them all in the Tang Dynasty. Rarely quoted today because it's, none, it's never been put in English, so people don't even know it's there. And Fadzong also has that wonderful terseness you know, he's as short and sharp as the sutra itself. And then you have Mongolians, you have uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is in there, uh, the Indians, and also the Westerners, because some of these interesting Western writers have said things that are memorable. And so I've tried to draw them all in and say, these are the questions that so many people in different places at different times have thought about. Uh, another thing that I was trying to do is um, and many of the writers are so fascinated by the philosophy of it and the enlightenment of it that they don't actually stop to tell you what it is. What does this word really mean? Or even give you the background. So the first part of the book, I actually have a sort of thumbnail sketch of Buddhism, which I don't think I've ever seen in a Heart Sutra book, but that's because they assume people know it. But nobody knows it. It's a few pages, just a few pages, but it's critical. And likewise, I'll pick up these jewel phrases and go into them. Uh, for example, everything is empty, da, 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 and it says all things are just like this, such. Well, that word such that everybody glosses right over, nyoze, is actually one of the biggest philosophical terms in Buddhism. All, they're all like that. Yes, it's saying they're all like that, but the likeness, the suchness, is the suchness of things, the wonder of things as they are. And there have been books written about this and philosophy, Buddhist philosophy is based on this. And so that one word opens up the door to, to realms of thought. Uh, another one, the one you mentioned, Naishi, that means basically, uh, etc. Well, that one's, uh, no one ever talks about that one, but that's critical because that gives you the nice fast forward because Buddhism is full of lists and the Heart Sutra is full of lists. You can get bogged down in those lists. And so item number one and item number two you know, and that often happens when people write about Buddhism. 
and pretty soon your eyelids are drop drooping, you know. Uh, but the, what the Naishi does is it gives you the first item in the list, and it says, and etc. until the end. And this helps keep the sutra short. And I honestly believe that one of the reasons that it survived until the present day, and nobody reads any of those other sutras, is because it's short. It was popular back then and all the more now when, uh, you know, nobody reads anything longer than a Twitter. <laughs> and so Naishi, the etc. phrase, help to make the sutra eternal. Can you talk about the relationship of calligraphy to the sutra? And uh, you had mentioned that you had started writing calligraphy uh, when you were nine years old, and you do such fantastic calligraphy. And anyone who has been to the Books on Asia site may have noticed uh, the Hon Kanji, which uh, Alex did for us. Thank you very much. So if you could talk a little bit about uh, calligraphy and the Heart Sutra and you, you putting that part of yourself into your book. Well, the Heart Sutra was connected with calligraphy almost immediately. It was translated by a monk, Xuanzang, in the 7th century. And within, I think, 10 years of, of its translation, the emperor had collected calligraphies by Wang Sijur, the greatest calligrapher who had ever lived, and what they did is they took things he'd written and picked out the kanjis and put them together like a puzzle with, to make it into Heart Sutra. And, and then he wrote a preface for that, and that was carved into a stila, which still stands in Xi'an. And from that day forward, writing the Heart Sutra in calligraphy was an act of merit. And in Japan, emperors would order thousands, tens of thousands of copies to be made uh, ladies who had retired after, a, you know, a heartbreak would uh, write in gold on beautiful blue paper and so on. And to this day, when you go to a Japanese temple, such as uh, the Moss Temple in Kyoto, Saihoji, before you see the garden, you go to, into a sutra copying room and you copy the Heart Sutra. Calligraphy equals Heart Sutra was there right at the beginning. And one reason why I think that's so is, and part of why I'm so fascinated in kanji in general and calligraphy in particular, is, you know, English words or word, alphabetical words are just a few things kind of strung together, but kanjis exist on their own. It's, a, it's one discrete thing like a Egyptian hieroglyph, and it jumps right into the brain. You can't pull it apart into bits. It's a thing. These things developed clouds, nuances. I call them multicolored clouds of meaning around them. That, of course, plus the expressive power of the Chinese uh, brush was capable of expressing thick and thin, strong and weak, uh, sad and happy, uh, you know, all these emotional uh, and expressive things can be there. And that, too, is part of the Heart Sutra. So it's just linked like this. Therefore, the impetus, the original impetus back in the early 80s to do this book, which came from Marguerite Yorsenar, she was fascinated by the concept of impermanence, evanescence. And she wanted to do the book and she was going to write it. She said, why don't you do calligraphy for it? So right at the beginning, we were going to do calligraphy with her writing. And of course now, in a sense, she's not here. So I have to fill in for your sonar. <laughs> and write writing. the book too. <laughs> and write it too. Well, one of the first kanji in the book, uh, or calligraphy, I should call it, because you have uh, done it, it's, um, I think, ku, and yes. it's very faint. Yes. And obviously that's done on purpose. Yes. Ku appears twice uh, as, as an illustration in the book, and the first time is very strong. 
The second time is you can hardly see it, and it's because it's done with a bamboo brush. Oh, okay. That brush. Uh, it's not right here. Uh, which is a, a piece of bamboo that's been pounded at the end so that the fibers are almost like a brush fiber. But, you know, they fall off and they're thin and they don't really pick up the ink. And so what happens when you use a bamboo brush is it's very scratchy. And, of course, that's where the material world sort of starts to fade into emptiness. Ah, so we have scratchy emptiness. I like that. Scratchy emptiness. That's a good definition for the, for the Heart Sutra itself. One of the biggest things I've tried to do is to present these concepts in an easy, friendly, fun way. You don't even have to think about it, and hopefully you'll never have to think about it, but as you read it, it sinks in a little more. And so I don't think the one reading is enough. And, and I was struck when you said you'd started to read it again. And, you know, I've written so many books, and usually I read them once when they're done, right? And I don't read the book again. This book, I, uh, my own book, I keep rereading. And so somebody said to me, after you finish the Heart Sutra, what then what do you do? And I said, uh, read it again. I think that's perfect advice. <laughs> and I think you've definitely achieved what you set out to do with this book. Uh, it doesn't go into the scholarly parts of it in a way that is boring. It's all very um, calculated and just dropped in at the right moments. Well, that was my hope. To drop it in the way Gilkey or David or Yorsenar would drop in uh, an amusing but profound thought. Which often your uh, chapters ended with. <laughs> a short, pithy thought that was actually quite interesting and deep. You know, one way for people to, by the way, think of this book, I've told my friends, look, you don't have to read the whole thing consecutively. It's written so that you can read two or three pages about one kanji all by itself. And think of it as a rakugo, you know, those Japanese humorous. Uh, uh, monologues and they're a little story and they have a, 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 a development and at the end they have what they call the ochi which is the funny quip at the end right almost every section is a little rakugo it's a little story about that word and then there's the ochi at the end you know that is so right and which reminds me of when i was reading through it i thought this is this would be such a great gift book because of that structure it's like, you know, the person you've always been trying to explain, like Buddhism or what you do or something like that, too. They could read these smaller sections and, and totally get it and be humored. And it, it doesn't have that uh, idea that you're going to get into something really deep and, you know, have to stay there for a long time. Well, thank you. I, I hope that's true. Certainly, I don't want to sit around for a big philosophy lecture. This is my way to enjoy it and to get into it and and i think and i hope people will feel that way and i have just one more question before we leave mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and i ask everyone on the podcast this is uh, just what are your favorite books on japan just one or two uh, you know uh lafcadio hearn at near the end of his life wrote a book called japan and interpretation in 1904 or 1908 or something it, it, it was so prophetic even I have an, an, a new book coming out in Japanese called Japan Pilgrimage. I feel like I'm the successor to that book. And so, and, and it's I'm, um, largely, I, I don't know that it's out of print, but it's not a common book. Wonderful. And there's a lot of uh, disillusionment in there and more concern and worry about the future of Japan. But he's also, as he always does, showing you the wonder of Japan. Uh, Chrysanthemum and the Sword is another one. 
is astonishingly true, even today, what she had to, what Ruth Benedict had to say, even though she never had even visited Japan. Oh, she hadn't? She, no, this was, she, the, that book was, uh, the U.S. government basically commissioned that book when they knew that we were going to win the war, and they were going to have this totally weird country on our hands, and what the world are we going to do? And so she interviewed POW, Japanese prisoners of war, and she went to the camps in California and so on. And she did a huge amount of reading and all that. But this was done without having been there. Wow, I hadn't realized that. That was one of the first books I read before coming to Japan. And it's still incredibly valid. For calligraphy, uh, there's a book called The Mystery of Things. And I, I'll have to pull it off my shelf. Uh, I'll look it up. Uh, by a Japanese calligrapher. It was published by Tuttle way back in the, maybe the 60s or something like that. And to this day, it's the best calligraphy I've ever seen, the most uh, charmingly written explanations of the calligraphy. It's, it's been behind all my calligraphy all these years. And it's in English and long out of print. Uh, someone should really republish that. You, you're, you're an influence in these worlds. Please ask Tuttle to, uh, to republish that one. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I don't know if they'll listen to me, but I'll certainly put that in. (laughs) So those are my three for the moment. All right. That's great. It's always so interesting to hear what other people read and what they enjoyed and uh, what their, you know, their stars are in their eyes. We look forward to your next books after this, too. I know you have Japanese Pilgrimage coming out, although it's in Japanese. I'm still very interested in hearing a little bit about that as well as your book on Bangkok. Thank you. And we'll just do some more podcasts. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks so much, Alex. Take care. You've been listening to the Books on Asia podcast, produced and edited by Michael Palmer. Logo by Alex Kerr. Sponsored by Stonebridge Press, publisher of fine books on Asia for over 30 years. They can be found at www.stonebridge.com. For more interviews, book reviews, and other features, visit the Books on Asia website at booksonasia.net.